Hello, everybody, and welcome to the November 10, 2020 edition of Peaceful Globalist Review. I'm your host, the Peaceful Globalist, Ephraim Josine. And, ladies and gentlemen, the continued attempt by the administration to deny reality as reality consistently closes in on them is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. We got to see Mike Pompeo make a funny, because when somebody asked him if there would be a peaceful transition of power, he said that, yeah, we'll transition to Trump's second term. That's silly Mike Pompeo. How long you think it took him to think of that? I bet 10 seconds, and it doesn't even make any sense because, among other things, that's not even what transition means, Mike Pompeo. You silly, silly goose. Mike Pompeo is a silly, silly goose. Anyway, Kaylee McAnney also held a conference that was so insane that even Neil, you goddamn bet I'm biased, Cavuto, had to cut them off on Fox News. And when Neil, you goddamn bet I'm biased, Cavuto isn't supporting you and you're a Republican, this is the guy who does like, what, 20 hours of Republican TV a week at this point? Some absurd amount like that. Um, you know, you know you're screwing up. A press conference that, I might add, also took place equal distance from a sex shop and a crematorium. Just... As everything should, by the way. And this not only had Kaylee McDonald's, it also had, oh God, please don't tell me her last name is McDonald's, Ronna McDaniel. Now I gotta call one of you two by your real last name. I can't call both of you McDonald's, jokingly. Uh, we'll call McDaniel's her real last name because it sounds closer to McDonald's because I'm off on guard like that. Anyway, we also have RNC chairwoman, Ronna McDan McDaniel. And I just want to say, why is that? That's the RNC chairwoman? I knew that was the RNC chairwoman going in. Ronna Romney McDaniel. Uh, the, I think, it says that she's the granddaughter of uh, George Romney and Mitt Romney's niece. And I just want to say, she was dressed like Carmen Sandiego, with, that can't be a real nose, that I refuse to believe that's a real nose. I genuinely do not think, no, that's not a nose. That's not a nose. Okay? That, that's like a sex toy you use on a nose. Oh, God. I know I shouldn't be making fun of people for how they look. I want to be clear. I know I shouldn't be, especially because I'm a glass house in that regard, too. But what is up with her nose? I'm being dead. Why is it so big? Why is it so big? And if you dare to respond with what I know you're thinking, viewer, I swear to God. No, no, she's a Mormon, don't worry. Um, but no, they were there <laughs> giving a press conference on the topic of voter fraud, even plugging the official voter fraud hotline. <laughs> oh my god, the voter fraud hotline. That's a thing. 
And yes, by the way, it is the hotline Alex Hirsch prank called in the voice of Seuss from Gravity Falls to report that the Hamburglar was stealing votes. And it was absolutely magical. Uh, however, <laughs> this isn't limited to press conferences. Attorney General 250 pounds of rotten veal, a.k.a. Bill Barr, um, decided to step in and investigate states that have not yet certified their election results, which is all of them, uh, for voter fraud. Now, I was going to come on here and tell you that this would not go anywhere, because Bill Barr is a, mo is a mob boss without a mafia. Okay? That's what he is. You know, he's just sitting there going, Listen, I don't like it when Quido breaks your thumbs, but you's making me make him break your thumbs. And meanwhile, there is no Quido. Okay? There is no Quido. What happened to Quido, dude? This is the guy who pressured Congress, his subcommittee on antitrust, into doing a 16-month investigation of various big tech companies, subpoena Jack Dorsey and Mark Zuckerberg hundreds of times, or not hundreds of times, tens of times, 16 months long, analyzed every antitrust thing. That was his dream. That was his backing. Um, and meanwhile, what, what happened? Oh, yeah, we read the report on the show. They couldn't find, after 16 months of looking, even an accidental smoking gun. They just couldn't. And you know why they couldn't? Because there was none. Despite the fact Bill Barr been pressuring them and pressuring them and pressuring them. Bill Barr is not a mob boss so much as he... I know I just called him a mob boss without a mafia. I think it's more accurate to say he's Quito without the strength. We're going with the mob metaphors. You guys may know, he was attorney general for, I, I forget if it was the full term or if it was just a year or two, under the first George Bush, George Bush Sr. Um, and one of the last things he did was pardon as everyone he could who was involved with Iran-Contra. Okay? Like, this is a guy who purely exists to keep his boys in office. That's his whole thing. Okay? That, that's, that's what Bill Barr does. He was basically only picked as a kind of statement to Robert Mueller. Especially considering, I believe, Mueller had worked with Bill Barr in the past. Um, so, right there, there's... All this reason to believe this won't go anywhere because Barr is just not a free-thinking person. Barr is not a human being. He is a series of chemical reactions that kind of look like one with a brain stuffed in a bunch of rotten veal. And then, and then today, the person in charge of investigating election fraud at the Department of Justice... Resigned! You just... Congratulations, Bill Barr, for being the absolute worst attorney general I've ever seen. 
you know, I don't know if I'd call him the worst. Like, in terms of evil, you know what? No, he is the worst. He combines the incompetence of Eric Holder with the evil of John Ascroft. He is an absolute horrible attorney general in every regard. He does nothing besides sit there and kiss Power's ring. His first big political goal was back during Vietnam just attacking protesters um, because he was a stupid narc. Bill Barr is a narc. Also, yes, he has played the bagpipes. Uh, completely ruining the concept of bagpipes, although those were also already ruined because they were bagpipes. Anyway, uh, Joe Biden has officially listed who he plans to have on his COVID advisory board, and one of the members has caused a little bit of controversy. That man is an ontologist and bioethicist by the name of Ezekiel Emanuel. And why has this man caused controversy in about a day? Well, the reason is because he is just that awesome of a bioethicist. I mean, for God's sake, he's a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress. Okay, that's not why. No, instead it's because of an article he wrote a few years ago in 2014, I am guessing. I don't have the date up. Let's see. Yeah, I got it right. Uh, for The Atlantic called Why I Hope to Die at 75. Now, now, COVID-19 does disproportionately affect the elderly. And as such, I would understand if someone would feel uncomfortable if this article were calling for giver-style being sent off to elsewhere, when in actuality that's just euthanasia, um, of anyone over a certain age. So let's actually read the article and find his call for eugenics. That's 75. That's how long I want to live. 75 years. This preference drives my daughters crazy. It drives my brothers crazy. My loving friends think I am crazy. They think that I can't mean what I say. That I haven't thought clearly about this because there is just so much in the world to see and do. To convince me of my errors, they ameliorate the myriad people I know who are over 75 and doing quite well. They are certainly, and as I get closer to 75, I will push the desired age back to 80 and 85, maybe even 90. Oh. Oh. Uh, okay, so this first paragraph is just kind of him talking about his own ex personal position. Is that just the entire article, like, him saying, hey, you know, I'd have lived a long, happy life by that point, and if I were to die at that age, it wouldn't be that big of a deal? Because that's not really all that concerning, truth be told. Okay, okay, second paragraph, show us the eugenics. I am sure of my position, doubtless. Death is a loss. It deprives us of experience and milestones, of time spent with our spouse and children. In short, it deprives us of all the things we value. 
oh, this actually sounds like a really kind of tender essay where a man is putting himself in a vulnerable position. Like, I'm supposed to be mad at this? Not really mad at this. Okay, okay. We'll give it a little longer. We'll give it a little longer. Maybe I'll find something to be mad at. But here is the simple truth that many of us seem to resist. Living too long is also a loss. Well, yeah, you know what? You can view it like that. And hey, if you don't feel fighting to the bitter end is worth it, then okay, that makes sense. It renders many of us, if not disabled, then faltering and declining. Yeah, that's objectively the case. And by the way, I want to note, I am not advocating for some kind of giver-esque system where people are sent off to elsewhere when they turn 75. And by that I mean give it a lethal shot. I know I just made that comparison, but it is worth reiterating that The Giver is actually a really good novel. Like, seriously, it's actually a really interesting portrayal of a collectivist society. I'd argue it's better than Anthem. I would. I'd argue it's better than Anthem. Um, but, yeah, I can see how some people would genuinely take that and say, I don't want to live past it. I mean, look at this culture around us, if you don't believe me. And we'll find that many of us actually kind of agree with this. How many times have you heard somebody say, when you ask them, hey, she should probably eat healthier, oh, what, I'll live to a hundred and be old and have Alzheimer's, won't be able to walk, can't even remember if I take a shit that day. You know, we hear these kind of argumentation all the time in our day-to-day -day lives. But when somebody writes in the Atlantic about it, all of a sudden it's supposed to be scary? I, I really don't get it. I, what, what's the controversy here? It robs us of our creativity and ability to contribute to work, society, and the world. Well, I don't know if I'd say creativity unless you have a genuine brain debilitating disorder, but that is decently common, so I would understand. It transforms how people experience us, relate to us, and most important, remember us. We are no longer remembered as vibrant and engaged, but as feeble, infectual, and even pathetic. That is objectively true. Um, that is objectively true for the record. I should note. And I can prove it right now. Think of Kurt Cobain, okay, who blew his brains out in the 90s versus Marilyn Manson, who was also very popular in that same kind of cultural zeitgeist, in that same area of culture even, at around the same time. And what, what is one of them? One of them is this poetic figure. Meanwhile, the other got old and fat and released some pretty okay music in a lot of people's opinion, but most people don't listen to it. You know, he's not really a big thing. Kurt Cobain's still a big thing. If you mention Kurt Cobain, most people know who he is. Even the, even the decently young people. It's not all the young people really know who Marilyn Manson is. And yeah, I would say the fact that 
one of them got his brains blew out, or one of them blew his brains out, or in politics, since that is my home turf, look at the Kennedys. Look at John Kennedy and Robert Kennedy, both of whom were shot when they were very young, or fairly young at least, they were both in their 40s, um, and around the same time, versus Ted Kennedy, who became one of the oldest senators, was basically the definition of career politician in most people's minds. And just became this old hated figure. You know, I'm I do think that does play an influence in how people view us. Now, again, again, I'm not saying that you should die. Okay, I'm not saying that. Don't die, listener. I'm saying that no, I can see why Ezekiel Emmanuel would have this perspective. By the time I reach 75, I will have lived a complete life. I will have loved and been loved. My children will be grown and in the midst of their own rich lives. I will have seen my grandchildren born and beginning their lives. I will have pursued my life's project and made whatever contributions, important or not, I am going to make. And hopefully I will not have too many mental and physical limitations. Dying at 75 will not be a tragedy. Indeed, I plan to have my memorial service before I die, and I don't want any crying or walk or wailing, but a warm gathering filled with fun reminiscence, stories of my awkwardness, and celebration of a good life. After I die, my survivors can have their memorial service if they want. That is not my business. And, by the way, in case you didn't get the point, the next paragraphs state, Let me be clear about my wish. I'm neither asking for more than is likely nor foreshadowing my life. Today I am, as far as a physician and I know, very healthy. With no chronic illness, I just climbed Kilimanjaro with two of my nephews, so I am not talking about bargaining with God to live to 75 because I have a terminal illness. Nor am I talking about waking up one morning 18 years from now and ending my life through euthanasia or suicide. Since the 1990s, I have actively opposed legalizing euthanasia and physician-assisted physician suicide. That, by the way, is a position I disagree with. I just, I just want to be clear. I believe that if a person with a chronic illness wants to end their own life, it's going to end anyway. You know, the only, the only people who really benefit from it are the health insurance companies. That's a different topic entirely. Uh, people who want to die in one of these ways tend to suffer not from um, unremitting pain, but from depression, hopelessness, and fear of losing their dignity and control. The people they leave behind inevitably feel they have somehow failed. The answer to these symptoms is not ending a life, but getting help. I have long argued we should focus on giving all terminally ill people a good, compassionate death, not euthanasia or assisted suicide for a tiny minority. I am talking about how long I want to live and the kind of amount of health care I will consist after 75. Americans seem to be obsessed with exercising, doing mental puzzles, consuming various juice and protein concoctions, and that is a big problem, by the way. Sticking to strict diets and popping vitamins and supplements, all in a valiant effort to cheat death and prolong life as long as possible. This has become so persuasive that it now defines a cultural type, what I call the American immortal. And I'm not going to read any more of this article, but honestly, frankly to say, 
I actually find it very interesting. And I am very happy that's, that this man, Ezekiel Emanuel, managed to open up about what is definitely a serious problem within American culture. And that is this view of, oh my God, I have to be, I'm constantly on a treadmill running away from death, which by the way, doesn't even make any sense. Um, when no, it's going to happen eventually. Now you shouldn't cause it, but we shouldn't be scared of it. We shouldn't be willing to embrace it, but we should view it as what it is, which is the end of a life. And we should focus on creating a good life at the time. Now, as for the people who are angry at this article, at this, by the way, I should note, this article is just a man saying what he wants to happen, not what is going to happen or even what he thinks should happen to all of us. Um, he is actually taking a very serious topic, putting himself in a vulnerable place about it, and I think it is absolutely, I think it's actually a very heart-wrenching article, and I'm happy it got brought back in the public discourse, albeit if for the exactly opposite reasons of why it should. Uh, so I, I'm going to be blunt with you guys. I take no issue with this article. If Ezekiel Emanuel wants to die at 75 and the Atlantic wants to publish it, that's fine. And I don't find anything particularly offensive in it outside of... I guess, I guess you could view it as... It, it could maybe tip someone over the edge if they're around that age and considering. but. Emmanuel has talked against physician-assisted suicide. He was a big, big opponent of legalizing it in the Netherlands back in the late 90s. So it's not as if this is some big pro-death guy. It's not like we have Dr. Death or somebody. It's not like we have, I don't know, uh, George Tiller, although George Tiller is dead, or Kermit Gosnell going around saying this. No, then that then that would be pretty weird. That would be pretty weird, and I would go, okay. I'm gonna start taking the exact opposite positions of you. Uh, but with that said, with that said, no, I I don't find anything offensive about this article. I view it as a man putting himself in a place of vulnerability and explaining what he thinks would be best for him in a very, in my opinion, interesting and thoughtful way. And I would recommend reading the full article if you do think it's offensive. Now, you'll see all these smear quotes from it for the next several months. But I, I just want you to know that I don't fall for it because, wow, this this was actually really good. Anyway, uh, you may remember, time to run a little bit of a victory lap. This is from the Daily Wire. You may remember the name Jacob Blake. If you don't, he's the guy in Wisconsin, the black guy, who the, the police were called on him. Uh, he then walked around the car several times. The police didn't arrest him. 
Then when it looked like he might be getting into the car, they shot him seven times, including in the spine, permanently paralyzing him. Um, and then they went on to, and, and we, we just proved this, we just proved this objectively. Lie about him having a knife for longer than he did, and lie about the motive for shooting him. A police made up like a month later that he thought Jacob Blake was kidnapping the people in the car, even ignoring the fact that those were his kids. He had no evidence that it was a kidnap, and we have no reason to believe he even believed that at the time of shooting him. And mind you, I just want to point out that all of this came about after a somewhat flimsy sexual assault claim um, that was not worth shooting someone over. And by the way, kidnapping, also not a capital offense, and even if it was, it's not really the place of police to decide this. But hey, you know what? I'll admit, assuming, assuming these sexual assault charges were legitimate, I was willing to at least say that, hey, Jacob Blake might have been a bad guy. I would have responded every time with, so fucking what? But I would concede that on the good guy scale, Jacob Blake leads more towards the opposite end. Until yesterday. From the Daily Wire, just to rub in some salt on the open wound, sex assault charges against Jacob Blake dropped in plea deal. Now, here is how the Daily Wire reported this. And mind you, the Daily Wire has been one of the least sympathetic outlets towards Jacob Blake. Okay? Keshka prosecutors have dropped the sexual assault charges against Jacob Blake following a plea agreement. Hmm, well, you know what? That does sound kind of like an important story. They then give some background and follow by now, the sexual assault charges against Blake have been dropped as part of a plea deal, the New York Times reported. Blake pleaded guilty to two counts of disorderly conduct in order to get the third-degree sexual assault charge dropped. Honestly, Your Honor, although I plead guilty to this, I don't consider myself to be guilty, Blake told Judge Bruce Schrodinger? The Keshka News reported, I pretty much took this opportunity to get to see my children quicker. That is very common, by the way, among people who take plea deals. That is actually very common, especially among poor people. Uh, Blake also said he did not sexually assault the woman making the allegation against him. Blake's attorney, Patrick Tariffi, said dropping the charges meant prosecutors were acknowledging that ultimately, the state could not prove it in court. I, I want you to notice that little that little admission there, that, by the way, the Daily Wire is probably going to read back sometime, um, that they admit they can't prove it. There's no evidence for it. A man was shot on this. 
I just want you to remind us that the Daily Wire is doing this. Where are the feminists outraged? Where are all the anti-cancel culture people? There is no bigger victim of cancel culture than Jacob Blake, as far as I'm concerned. Remember when Me Too was going on? That was a big point. Just an allegation could ruin a man's life. And, of course, the amount of times that actually happened could be counted on no hands. Um, well, actually, you could count on one hand. You need one finger. And that finger would belong to Jacob Blake. He was accused of sexual assault with no evidence on charges that are being dropped because they could not be proven. And as such, he was permanently paralyzed after being shot seven times. And I should also note, Blake also said he did not sexually assault the woman making the allegation against him. Oh, wait, I already read that part. Uh, Wadsworth County District Attorney Zach Winterfield told the outlet the sexual assault charges was dropped in part because the recuser refused to cooperate with the prosecution. This was an agreement reached partly because the victim in this matter was not responsive to the subpoena to appear in court. So, essentially, essentially, what we, what we are getting here is that this is actually what we were warned about during Me Too. This is quite literally what we were warned about. A man's life was ruined. He was permanently paralyzed. Shot seven times in the back. As a result of these nonsense sexual assault allegations that are now being dropped. I mean, this is... Jacob Blake was me too. Jacob Blake was me too. Jacob Blake is the truest victim of cancel culture, far as I am concerned. You cannot be a bigger victim of cancel culture than Jacob Blake. Isn't that funny? That's our show. Good night.